couldn't have had a more appropriate uh, message from Bolivia than what Mr. Ramsey shared as a preparation for what we're talking about this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 4. And so let's look at it this morning. Jeff read for us the entire text of uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I just want to reiterate for time the main verse that we're looking at, and that is in verse 7, where Paul gives Timothy the charge to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. 1 Timothy was written to Timothy, who was a leader of leaders. And the text of the book deals with the leadership in the church, particularly the proper labors of men, who will be the principals in defending the faith and governing the church. And I say this, point this out, not to say that there isn't anything uh, beyond the specific instructions that Tim talked about last week given for women in 1 Timothy. That's not true. There's a great deal for all of us to learn, particularly about the general disciplines of godliness that I'm going to be preaching about this morning. But there is for us in 1 Timothy, for us all, the benefit and the, and the uh, joy, the care of God for his church as it's laid out for Timothy to lay out to the leaders of that church. Uh, men, it is true, have the particular responsibility of defending their wives and their sisters and their children against enemies and marauders in this world, in this life. They also have, according to the Scripture, the particular responsibility of defending the church and their families against spiritual enemies. And most of 1 Timothy, including the primary text this morning, is written between a pair of parentheses, two thematic commands that surround the greater portion of the book. And the first one is found in chapter 1, verse 18 where Paul says to Timothy, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And then the other end of the book, in chapter 6, verse 12, Paul reiterates and he says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy is fighting a battle. Each of the pastoral epistles, letters of Paul to specific pastors, Timothy and Titus, are written under the assumption that a battle is being fought. The fight is the good fight of faith. Prior to a battle, several things typically happen. You have the mustering of the troops. You have the putting in place of discipline and authority structure. You have exercises and maneuvers. You have the maintenance of and proficiency with weaponry that is practiced. And you have fortifications that are built in the process coming into a battle. And this is the battle that God calls us to. It's a battle of spiritual war. This is what he says to Timothy to prepare himself for. A battle of spiritual war. The godly man, a good soldier, will be disciplined for the fight. And so he says to Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, you've all heard of the book Peter Pan. Who's heard of the book Peter Pan or heard of the play or whatever? Okay, pretty much everybody. 
Okay, in the book, in the actual book by James Berry, there's a little dialogue that takes place between Peter Pan and Wendy's mother, and Wendy might say something, but it goes like this. Mrs. Darling, that's Wendy's mother, comes to the window, for at present she was keeping a sharp eye on Wendy, and she told Peter that she had adopted all the other boys, the lost boys, and would like to adopt him also. And so he says to her, Would you send me to school? Yes. And then to an office? I suppose so. Soon I would be a man? Very soon. I don't want to go to school and learn solemn things, he told her passionately. I don't want to be a man. Keep back, lady. No one is going to catch me and make me a man. Now we jokingly refer to men who refuse to grow up as having Peter Pan syndrome. Have you ever used that phrase before? Men who refuse to grow up. But one evidence of maturity in growing up in men is that they are willing to be submitted to discipline. And the Bible is interesting as it talks about this concept of submission to discipline. In Hebrews chapter 12, you're familiar with the passage where it talks about how God disciplines us because He loves us as His sons. Are you familiar with that passage? God disciplines us because He loves us as His sons. And those whom He does not discipline are called illegitimate. They're illegitimate. Well, if you look at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11, Paul's talking to those who he's writing to, and he says concerning him, and at this point he's talking about Jesus being like Melchizedek, he says concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Where he talks about being dull of hearing, it's actually a derivative of that same word for illegitimate used in chapter 12. And so in chapter 12, you're illegitimate if you're undisciplined by your father. But in chapter 5, you're acting like you're an illegitimate if you don't discipline yourself. If you refuse to discipline yourself. If you are sluggish and slow and lazy and not developing. If you have Peter Pan syndrome as a Christian. And so we are supposed to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. In First Timothy 4, it says bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for, the, for this present life and also for the life to come. What promise does it hold for us to be godly for this present life and for the life to come? Well, it's easy to see the answer to the, the part about the life to come, isn't it? Because we think easily in terms of what the Bible says about heaven. And so we see the benefits of godliness in, in the future, our coming to God and getting the reward of heaven and being with Him, having His blessing, being personally there, present with the Father and with Christ. Heaven holds specific promises. We can see them in the Scriptures. But what about the promise for this life? The pastors had a discussion this past week over the tension between the already and the not yet nature of the kingdom of God. God's kingdom is here. You realize that. God's kingdom is here on earth. Jesus inaugurated it. It's advancing. It's been advancing ever since Jesus was here on the earth in person. And yet there's this tension of there's an unrealized reality or aspect of the kingdom of God. It's not happened quite yet. 
And so we live in this tension. And in this tension, it's a lot like the time between D-Day and Victory Day in the Second World War. What happened at D-Day? Well, at D-Day, everybody looks at that as a time when the Allied powers really broke the back of, of the other, of the enemy. Right? That's the time when they see everything changed, the tide turned. But was that the end of the fighting? Was that the end of the tension? No. Between D-Day and the day of the victory, there was the most intensive fighting of the war. The bloodiest battles of the war. Some of them were fought between those two days. We live in that type of tension now. We live in a tension that is seen in the theology of godliness, and it's seen here in the book of First Timothy. It's the tension that Mr. Ramsey was talking about when he was talking about the fight, the war that's taking place in Bolivia. Well, the war isn't, I, I don't know if you realize this, the war just isn't in Bolivia. Did you all catch that? I mean, he's right, there is a battle in Bolivia. But there is a war that we're fighting right here. The same war that they're fighting in Bolivia is being fought right here in Bloomington, right here by the people who are Christians in Church of the Good Shepherd. So we have a promise for, for this life that godliness will bring to us. Well, what, is it, what are the things that godliness brings to us in this life? Well, if you look at the themes of the Bible and you see the promises, we have rest from our fleshly attempt at righteousness because we have peace with God through Jesus Christ, Right? So we're not fighting and working trying to be righteous anymore, are we? We have peace with God in His law. We have comfort in His sovereignty and revealed authority structure. We have love for our neighbor, our husband, etc., etc. We have contentment in our lot in life. We have power over the deceiver, right? That's all realized now in this life. Those are things that are realized because of godliness. Now, you ought to be thinking to yourself, well, I kind of see what you're saying, but I'm a little uncomfortable with all those things being fully realized now because I struggle with those things regularly. And that's the reality of the internal, internal tension that's, that's here in the already and the not yet. The reality of our lives as we live and as we fight this battle. Why? Because we're in the process of fighting the good fight of faith. If we're Christians... We realize these benefits. Sometimes, some of them for little periods and spurts, sporadically, we realize these benefits now. We have tastes of the promises of God realized here on earth. But to a very large extent, we are yet ungodly. And therefore, we do not see realize the present benefits of godliness unless in this occasional form. They come. We see them. We have glimpses. And then we struggle and we fight. We must be disciplined for the purpose of godliness. The godly man is disciplined. The godly man is doctrinal. The godly man is doctrinal. First Timothy 3:15 to 18. But in case I am delayed, Paul writes, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
The mystery of godliness is described here as a doctrinal confession. Notice from verse 15 that the church is the support on which this confession stands. There is no godliness apart from the church. She is the pedestal upon which godliness is displayed. If you're tempted to think, and we are, if you're tempted to think that what is meant here by the church is some universal loose relational affiliation, some grand undefinable organism, I invite you to look at the verses preceding verses 15 and 16. Because what those verses are, are the instructions concerning the putting in place of men to be elders and deacons in specific churches. Godliness is in the church. It's demonstrated in the church. And it begins with a doctrinal foundation. And not just any doctrinal foundation, a certain specific doctrinal foundation. 1 Timothy chapter 6. If anyone advocates a different doctrine that does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. Titus 1, verse 1. Paul says, I am a bonder servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. 2 Peter 3, I'm sorry, 2 Peter 1, verse 3. Seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. There is a specific doctrine that is in accordance with godliness. Eleven of the fifteen references to the word godliness are found in the pastoral epistles. And it's not insignificant or accidental that eleven of the fourteen uses of the word doctrine are found in the exact same books. Godliness demands that we be doctrinal. And not willy-nilly doctrinal, but that we understand the true doctrine of Christ that is in conformity with godliness. If there's a doctrine that's in conformity with godliness, it stands to reason that there may be doctrines that are not in conformity with godliness. Well, if you're tempted to think that's not true, look at chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So that establishes clearly from the text that there are doctrines that are ungodly doctrines that are vying for our attention and out there ready to deceive. There are deceiving spirits in Christianity, distributing false doctrine, even sometimes disguised as a promise of freedom from doctrine itself. And we've heard some of these expressions before. Uh, Doctrine divides, but Jesus unites. No creed but Christ. We're not about dogma. I read a quote from an older parachurch ministry leader this past week. He's in his 70s. And he says, this is the most, the single most significant thing I've learned in the past 50 years, he said, is that religion is divisive, but the ideas of Jesus are cohesive. That sounds very good. It sounds very plausible. 
Isn't it good that Jesus had some ideas? You understand the danger of these words. That's just one of the dangers. If you've heard these statements and have been influenced by them, you have listened to a deceiving spirit. Does cultivated ignorance of doctrine or the sound words of Jesus make godliness impossible? Does cultivated ignorance of doctrine, the sound words of Jesus, make godliness impossible? Yes. It makes godliness impossible. Not only is it impossible for us to be godly if we believe lies, but it is also it negates our ability to experience the blessings of godliness in this life. Now you might say, well, I'm, I don't know about being doctrinal. You know, I think about doctrinal and I think about people who do institutes of Christian religion studies by John Calvin. Do I have to do that? Do I have to memorize all those things before I can be godly? And the answer is absolutely not. It is good to remember that Doctrinal findings of godly men can be of great benefit to us. But we, each one of us, have to be doctrinal. We have to be growing and cultivating an increase of the knowledge of the doctrines of Jesus Christ that are true and liberating. What exercises do we do to grow in our understanding of God's Word? What do we learn from the preacher from the Bible study, from our private devotional time? What do we learn about the truth of God's Word, about the theology, the doctrine, according to godliness? The godly man is doctrinal, intentionally understanding doctrine. The godly man is discerning. And the discernment of the godly man is built on the foundation of sound doctrine. Matthew 7 is a familiar passage where Jesus talks about the wise man building a house on the rock. He says, anyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Of course, we understand that a house built on a rock, in this case, represents those who put into practice the words of Jesus that they have heard. And we talk about that quite often. We talk about putting into practice the words Jesus has heard. But what does the rain and the floods and the wind represent? What do those things represent? What are those things saying to us? They represent the conflict that will test the building and its foundation. How long will it take for this conflict to run its course? How long will the battle be? When can we expect that we can let down our guard against the battle that's waging against us? Mr. Ramsey, when do you expect to let down your guard against the battle that's waging against you? When you're in heaven. That's exactly right. Paul didn't say to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith and it'll probably take a couple of weeks and then you'll be done. He said, fight the good fight of faith. And Timothy knew that it was a fight he would fight until the day he died. And that he had to be discerning as he fought this fight. It was a personal battle. Paul himself talked about his fight. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, 
I have fought the good fight. I finished the course. I kept the faith. He told Timothy in 1 Timothy, fight the good fight for the faith. In 2 Timothy, I've fought it. He saw his own death coming right down the street. And he said, I've fought the fight. I'm finished. Praise God. He has kept me. He tells Timothy to avoid those displaying false godliness. He says, show show discernment, Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant. goes on to describe all of their sinful characteristics. And he says in verse 5, they will hold to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Okay, I'll avoid those men with only the form of godliness, but how will I be able to know who they are? How are you going to be able to know who they are, men? How are you going to defend your wives and your children and the church against these men who hold to a form of godliness? If you don't have a godly biblical foundation for his truth, and if you don't exercise, discipline yourself in discernment. This past week I saw an interview or a a statement from uh, Reverend Robert Schuler, pastor of Southern California's Crystal Cathedral and host of the TV program that he has called Hour of Power. And he was commenting, commenting on the movie The Da Vinci Code. You may or may not know anything about this movie, but it's a godless movie. It's an antichrist movie. And this was his comment. As long as people talk about the Da Vinci Code, they'll discover the divinity code of who Jesus Christ is. This he said after he went and saw the movie himself. Is there any irony to the fact that his television show is called The Hour of Power? Having a form of godliness but denying the power of godliness? Is there, you see the irony there? How will we train ourselves? How are we disciplined to know? Discernment starts with doctrine. Back to Hebrews 5 again. He has much to say to them in verse 11, but they have become dull of hearing. They're like, they're like acting like illegitimists. They don't, they don't, they don't uh, discipline themselves. And he says, you, you, you need somebody to teach you the, 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 the meatier things of the faith, but you're still eating milk. And I have to take you back to the beginnings again. You ought to be teaching other people, but, you, but, but you're not. He says in verse 14, Solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Trained to discern good and evil. What brings about the ability to discern? Well, first of all, you have to have doctrine. You have to have truth. Or you can't discern nothing. And secondly, you have to practice and train yourself and discipline yourself in discernment. Graduating from one level to another. When, we, when our children were eating baby food, we used to buy this baby food, and uh, I, I think it had colors or numbers on it. Okay, And as your child got older, your child graduated to a higher number or a higher color until you got to level 26, and you opened the jar, and you turn it up and shook it on the plate, and a porterhouse steak fell out. Then you knew that the kid can probably just eat whatever's on the table. Right? Well, this is what Paul's talking about. Discipline yourselves. Eat meatier and meatier and meatier things until the time that comes 
when you can have that porterhouse steak poured out in front of you, you'll be teaching other people and taking care of their souls. Does an uncultivated or lazy lack of discernment make godliness impossible? Yes. It makes godliness impossible. Once again, also, the promises of godliness for us in this life are unavailable. They're out of reach. How are you exercising your discernment? Do you compare the philosophies that influence you to the doctrine that conforms to godliness? Do you take action to build your defenses and oppose that which is false and destructive? How are you disciplining yourself in godliness? In discernment. The, the godly man is discerning, and he is discerning intentionally. I'm going to move quickly. Um, the godly man mortifies his flesh. If you look at second or if you look at Timothy chapter two, we are instructed to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. Mortify his flesh. What does that mean? Well it means that we kill, we deaden, we deny, we strangle our sinful inclinations and actions. This is the responsibility of godly people. Not because this self-denial will save us. It won't save us. Jesus died to save us. He delivered us from our sins. But we are called to godliness. And the godliness we're called to is a godliness that includes denying our flesh and living as unto God in obedience. Can the man who is carnal and fleshly and worldly as a principle, with no attempt to reverse this process, can, can a man like this who is set on sin still be godly? And what's the answer? No. No. Godliness demands that we mortify our flesh in obedience to God. The godly man is also content. Contentment is unusual in that it exists both as a discipline in our lives and as a fruit of godliness. We discipline ourselves to contentment and we receive contentment as a blessing from the Lord. And Tim really did talk about this quite a bit last week. I'm not going to go through it, but only to ask you to, to understand and read through the passages he read in 1 Timothy 2 when he was talking about godliness and godly women and also the, the, the statement to men about lifting holy hands without dissension, as he was talking about that and how it, created, how it connected to the creation order and how it connected to the, the reality of the fall. And remember, there was a statement in there about godly women and childbirth. Do you remember that there's something in the fall about childbirth also? Do you remember that? An increased penalty concerning pain in childbirth? And so in First Timothy, God is connecting the blessing of Jesus to restore and give victory to women over an issue that was, that was set up in the curse. But the same thing is true of men. And in that whole context, you find this, this reality about contentment. Because you're talking about who has authority, right? And you're talking about our responsibilities and authority and how we act within our within our our uh, uh, sphere of authority. And so God has that all lined out in there, how this is true for women, this is true for men, 
If you look at the thing about men, and men were cursed with, with a toil, and you think about what we wrangle over, we wrangle over uh, not, not getting what we want, because we want the easy way so we can avoid the toil. And that's what James is saying, what, what's causing fights and dissension among you? Isn't, isn't it because you don't have what you want? There's a connection there between the two and contentment that's available, a, a discipline of contentment that's supposed to be in place for us. Can a malcontent be godly? Can you be malcontent and malcontent and be godly? Can you be a malcontent, be godly, and have the promises associated with godliness? No. What areas are we working in our lives to practice contentment and discipline ourselves to contentment? Are you content financially? Or are you seeking greedy, greedily seeking gain? Are you content with God's authority structure? Are you content with your position? You know, when he talks about position, he, he's, when he talks about being content in godliness, it's coming right out of a section where he talks to men who are slaves. They're in slavery. They're bond slaves. We are men. We have a position. We have a role. We go to work every day. We do all these kinds of things. Are we content with what, what we've been given by God in these positions? Or are we always striving, malcontent about, about who we are and what we've been given? Our position in life. The godly man is content. I want to say in, in, as, a, as final thoughts today, drawing these things together, these disciplines of godliness that were disciplined, that were doctrinal, that were discerning, that were mortifying the flesh, that were content that all of these things can be practiced as a kind of a works. They can all be practiced and, and seen as some kind of grudging responsibility that we have. But that's not what they were made for. Because Jesus has been applied to our lives. In fact, in, that, in those verses in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when he's done talking about women and childbirth, he, he says that, uh, that we will have... Uh, where is that? We will have faith... Love that we practice these things in faith, love, and sanctity. Faith, love, and sanctity. All of these are indicative of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives, the work of Christ that's applied to our people, to His people. Power for godliness is something that is applied to us. We are supposed to do all these things as a practice of godliness. But it's because we have the power of God that is applied to us through Jesus Christ. Second Peter chapter 1 Verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Everything necessary for us to be godly has been provided to us through Jesus Christ. His power, his power for godliness to deal with these these issues of, of uh, exercise that we are supposed to be participating in. The joy, the peace, the hope, the rest, the trust, the victory for the Christian is found 
in our godly living. Our godly living is empowered by the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. I don't, I don't want to be a Christian living godly because I have a sense of duty. There's power for living beyond a sense of duty. And that's where godliness is. And it's much greater and more powerful than anything we could ever muster in our duty. And it's what's available to us. Men and women, leaders, those in authority, those under authority. It's what is available to us to celebrate and to have contentment and to have joy and peace and rest because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.